Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. We're coming to you again from Melbourne and with me today is Gordon Conachie. Gordon is a research fellow with La Trobe University. He has just published his latest book through Monash University Press, A Tiger Rules the Mountain, and it's all about Cambodia. Gordon, welcome to the program. Hey Luke, nice to be here. I remember meeting you a year and a half, two years ago. We were in a bar in Phnom Penh. You were telling me that you were trying to finish up this book and you've done it. Congratulations. Thanks, yeah. It does seem like a while ago. Been back in that bar in Phnom Penh and it was, uh, it was certainly just getting to the end where you can see the finish line. Right. And you're just wanting to, to kind of get those last bits of information, the last few stories to complete the book. And you got there. Did. Yes, got there. And from what I understand, I haven't read all of it, however, you have a lot of respect for Hun Sen, who's just resigned as Prime Minister. His son, Hun Manet, has taken over, but he was in power for nearly 38 years and uh, he's an odd type of magnet. Some people love him, some people loathe him, but you have to give him his due. He did hold the country together for almost four decades. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it's easy... You know, for people, especially you know, coming from the West, to to characterise Hun Sen as abrasive, mm-hmm. um, you know, violent even, and you know, gets unkinder kind of descriptions described as a strong man. Right. Other times, uh, a dictator, authoritarian. I think you can't deny that he must be extremely smart though to hold power for thirty-eight years. You can't do that without having a good sense of how to manage people. How mm-hmm. to read the whole country and to to manage all the competing factions within his own party and Cambodia. So certainly you've got to have an understanding of what he was able to achieve just in terms of holding power. Now the next bit is what do you do with the power? Right. And that's where there's obviously a lot of debate about the quality of his prime ministerialship. Mm-hmm. I notice you've singled out key moments during his uh, stewardship. Uh, yeah. There was the coup, which not everybody agrees with that term. I was going to say, you use the word coup, yeah, that's often the marker, uh, isn't it? Do you well, use that word or not? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of an odd one. Some people would argue <laughs> it was a coup when he ousted Funsen Peck in a coalition government. Yep. Others would also say that um, Funsen Peck was preparing to do a deal with the Khmer Rouge to bring them back into power and yep. Hun Sen did the right thing in making sure that did not happen. Yeah. Another key date, I think, was 2003 when Chia Sim was was the president of the party. Yeah. 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 How important were these dates? Oh, I think they're they're vital to understanding, Mm -hmm. you know, Cambodia, where it is today. And, you know, I think the UNTAC um, administered election. Right, that was in in 1993. Yeah, which you just kind of referred to, I think, there about, you know, Funchen Peck won that election. Right. However, they didn't win an overall majority. There were three seats short. And you needed to have a uh, two-thirds majority, if I remember right, right yeah. under the Constitution. So yeah. inevitably it was going to be a coalition government. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Now, there was that, that standoff, wasn't there, when mm-hmm. some provinces said that they would you know, defect from Cambodia. Right. And they would set up their own state. And Hun Sen was... Uh, you know, depending on, on who you believe, either trying to suppress that and and retain the, the country together, or he was kind of facilitating that to strengthen his bargaining hand. Whatever happened, he ended up uh, maintaining a level of being co-prime minister. 
Now, that was the key moment that set in train, I guess, the next you know, 30 years. Hun Sen was not prepared to give up power. Um, he would not countenance any situation where he was not able to control um, Cambodia and some of the key levers of power. Um, now, that led us to that stage in, in 1997 where Fun Shunpek and CCP, uh, the CPP, sorry, had the battle in Phnom Penh. You know, they had tanks on mm-hmm. the streets, there were rockets being fired, and Hun Sen emerged from the dust as the winner, um, and Fun Shunpek were, were vanquished as, a, as an armed force. The interesting thing about that battle, I guess, and speaking to other people, you know, Cambodians over the years, is that the CPP weren't unified at that moment in time. Indeed. In fact, uh, one could argue that's still the case, but it's not something they like to talk about Exactly. <laughs> not so much. No, they present a very unified front. But then uh, Chia Simon was the president. He, he can withheld the forces that he controlled from the fight. Mm-hmm. And Hun Sen won. Uh, with his own forces that he controlled. But what that meant was that it emboldened and strengthened Hun Sen domestically in comparison to Chia Sim, because Hun Sen vanquished the Fun Shunpek party and the forces. And then Hun Sen managed to ensure that his supporters controlled the key agencies of state, you know, power and uh, the police and the army and so forth. And then that set in train, you know, the... The, the next few years where Hun Sen was able to publicly show that he controlled all when he escorted the CPP president and chased him out of the country at, you know, police escort. I remember the day. Yeah, in fact, yeah. uh, I was the bureau chief for Ajans France Press at the time and uh, my senior Khmer journalist, Rich Sambard, who's no longer with us, he uh, came into the office and uh, pulled out the local Khmer journalists and said, you're coming with me. And they went down to Chia Sim's house. He'd received a phone call from the CPP hierarchy saying, make sure you're there. And it was, they wanted witnesses to Chia Sim being told, being expelled from the country. Yeah, yeah, and that was it. That was that, that public show of power, wasn't it? Indeed. And once that had occurred, there was nobody who was willing to challenge Hun Sen within the CPP. Um, once it was clear that Hun Sen had the power to do that to chase him, mm-hmm. then there was nobody else who was who was able to to really conceive of having enough support to challenge Hun Sen for the leadership of the CPP. And at that point, that, that really meant leadership of the country as well. Right. And from then, his authority was absolutely stamped yeah. Although that came into question in uh, 2013. Yes. Well, wind back a little bit, because I think the elections in 2008, and uh, this is disputed, but I do think he was helped enormously by the Thai invasion of Cambodia, well, border crossing of Prava here, because everybody supported Cambodia on that one, and they won in the international courts. Yeah. But... There was, uh, you know, politicians these days are often accused of whipping up nationalism to uh, suit their political agenda. Yeah. But at that point, it was very real. They had crossed the border, they had taken a sacred temple, and uh, they were lobbying cluster bombs and RPGs down into the villages below. And Hun Sen enjoyed an enormous amount of support. Yeah, and I think the same, you know, tactics and circumstances that 
are used in other countries to gain domestic support, mm -hmm. such as you know the currents of a war and increasing the feeling of national pride and unity, then that's, that applies in Cambodia too. Yeah. It's not some unique country. So understandably, Hun Sen made the most of that um, opportunity. And, you know, Cambodia and Cambodians have a huge pride in Prevy here. Sure. Um, so for them to be attacked there by their neighbours, then, yeah, that certainly helped Hun Sen and his party. And they won quite handsomely. Yeah. And then 2013, it was a different story. Yeah, exactly. So, and this is where you know my book release starts. So, I arrived in Cambodia at the very start of two thousand and twelve, mm -hmm. and there were commune council, you know, the local elections in uh, June two thousand and twelve that year, I think mm -hmm. it was, um, and the the CPP won that handsomely. You know, it was a kind of one way procession. The opposition parties, and there were two main opposition parties at that point in time. So, it was the, the Sam Rainsy party. Um, led by Sam Rainsy, and the Kem Soka Human Rights Party. Yes. And what happened was the, the two opposition parties took votes from each other, effectively, and divided resources, divided messaging, etc. And the CPP was able to win, you know, dominantly. This is in the communal Yeah, elections, exactly. Yeah. And the overall vote. Yeah. Now, at that point, the colleagues I was, uh, you know, speaking to and the Cambodian friends I was listening to, those who opposed the CPP were despondent. They did not see where, you know, their hope was for a change in government. One year later, 2013, there's been a dramatic change. Sam Rainsy has been able to come back to Cambodia. The two opposition parties... And it was an extraordinary scene. I mean, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a million people yeah. packing the road from the airport to... Uh, through to, to the Seagram Park, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, that was incomprehensible for many people. They, they would not have envisaged that happening. You know, that outpouring of support for the opposition. You know, there were people in Cambodia who were scared of even mentioning in a conversation their support for Sam Rainsy. I still are. Yeah, let alone <laughs> going out in the street right. and showing their face and going to the airport, hailing the return of their hero. That was momentous, and that just set off a chain reaction throughout the country. Wherever Sam Rainsy and Kem Sakam met, went, they were met with tens of thousands of people. And witnessing that, I began to, to kind of see an awakening, I guess, within Cambodian people of a belief that change was possible. Right, and of course, the two parties merged. They formed the Cambodian National Rescue Party, the CNRP. And uh, going into the elections, I, I still remember it was quite dramatic. The uh, colourful, robust, dramatic, the, uh, especially uh, the Cambodian youth and the way they um, campaigned. And yep. it was change, no change, yeah. change, no change. And it was all very friendly too. You had CPP supporters on one side and CNRP supporters on the other. They would confront on their motorbikes and they'd be change, no change, change, no change. But there was no malice involved. There was no violence, there was no animosity at all between them, but it was all rather good natured. It's funny, so there was a campaign I saw on uh, Monivong Boulevard mm -hmm. in Phnom Penh, one of the main thoroughfares, and it was the CNRP going down one side and Phun Pet going up the other side. Right. And they stopped, and I managed to get a photo of this, and people leaning across the barrier in the middle of the road, shaking hands with each other. Right. 
Uh, and you're right, that kind of you know camaraderie fraternity was widespread. Interestingly though, and this was something I think because I was coming at it from a particular perspective and experience, I didn't have many friends or colleagues who were CPP supporters. And I remember speaking to one man who was a CPP supporter and thinking, I wonder what he's feeling when he's seeing these tens of thousands of people in their motos out campaigning. Mm-hmm. Do they feel frightened? Do they feel scared? Do they feel angry? What do they feel? And then in the book, I, I talk about how uh, I was having a conversation with the man who, who worked for Hun Mani, uh, right. Hun Sen's youngest son, who was campaigning. And they had an encounter with CNRP supporters which they thought was aggressive and near bordering on violent. And it was interesting that we saw the CNRP campaign as friendly, vivacious, fun, but there was certainly some CPP who saw it as threatening. Right. I think one of the big mistakes made by Sam Rainsy was that they'd done very well. They had, in the end, they would claim about 46, 40% of the popular vote. One would argue that uh, that's not enough. If you look at the example set in Malaysia a couple of years later, they would need to have won 60 or 70% of the vote to get around the gerrymandering, which was an American invention. A lot of countries do it. I'm not overly criticised that concept. But they did win 45, 46% of the overall vote. And that really scared the hell out of the CPP. But I think what also did it was that Sam Rainsy shot too early. He came out very early in the count and claimed victory. And he hadn't won. He was basing his claim on the, the early results from electorates that he was always going to win. And he refused to back down, which kind of set the stage for the conflict that was yeah. to come. Yeah, that's correct. And I think that example of Sam Rainsy's behaviour is, is not isolated. Right. Uh, and I think... You know, Cambodians became disappointed over the years with Sam Rainsy saying one thing mm-hmm. and later on it being proven to be not completely true. Um, Funny thing about politicians. Yeah, exactly. But you're right, that, that Sunday he came out and said, you know, we've won. And then on the Monday, Kem Sokao was mm-hmm. saying the same. But as, you know, the, the count was done and even the independent NGOs who were, you know, monitoring yep. the election, you know, they produced their reports that verified that the the voting had been counted pretty much correctly. Indeed, I remember British election observers, independent, coming out and saying, does, you know, the question is, did this election reflect the will of the Cambodian people? And they all said, pretty much. Yeah. And I think, so the will of the people is an interesting phrase. And I talk about that in the book a little bit as well. Mm. Because I think... The counting the number of votes cast accurately is one thing. That does not necessarily equal the will of the people, though. Right. And certainly to the 2013 election, there were people who couldn't vote, who weren't on the, the voter list because of you know poor registration and poor administration. There might have been some malevolent omission of people as well, but that was a problem, certainly. Um, there's also the issue within Cambodia of, fe- of people feeling pressured in various ways to vote for the ruling party, the CPP. And that, that comes from the top all the way down exactly. to the village level. Yes, exactly. So when there are some people in the opposition who would say even a valid election result doesn't reflect the will of the people, 
because the will of the people is being twisted and contorted by pressure. So I think it's interesting when people use the certain phrases like will of the people and things. I think what is accurate though is that the 2013 election, the counting was done accurately enough to, to say that the CPP won that election and the CNRP were wrong in claiming that they had won the election. Now, that then led to what happens next after the election and, you know, the year-long standoff between the CPP and the CNRP. Well, they did try to negotiate Yes. for quite a while, a year, maybe two. Yeah, so I think the election was the end of July in 2013 and I think it was mid-July, July the 22nd, I think, maybe in 2014, that they declared uh, an agreement. Right, and there was a... There were those lovely photos of Hun Sen, Bun Rani's wife, Samora, Sam Rains, his wife and yeah. Sam Rainsy, up at Angkor Wat, sort of uh, exactly. going for a tour, yes. holding hands, <laughs> being nice to each other, yeah. we can work together, yep. kind of thing. It was almost reminiscent of the um, CPP alliance with Hun Sen Peck, uh, Rat Prince Rana ridden yeah. Hun Sen back in back the Back in the 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and that, that culture of dialogue, it was called... Um, you know, they referred to that. That lasted a year. Um, and I guess that was a moment when there was potentially an opportunity for the division within Cambodian politics to, you know, to recede and for Sam Rainsy and Hun Sen, the two kind of titans, to, to work together. And that possibility was alive for a year and then it was extinguished abruptly. What ended it? It's interesting. I have, my, I have my own ideas. But. Yeah. So looking at certainly some of the, the speeches, speaking to people within uh, the CPP and the opposition, Sam Rainsy was in France and gave an interview to a French newspaper. And in that, he talked about messages that him and, and uh, Hun Sen had exchanged personally and how Hun Sen had disclosed to Sam Rainsy his innermost thoughts about his children and the future of his children right. and their political careers and how Hun Sen needed Sam Rainsy and Hun Sen's children needed Sam Rainsy's children to help their kind of progression you know, in, in terms of a democratic future for Cambodia and things. Hun Sen exploded when this article was, was translated and then you know, reported upon. And he, he said there is no scenario where his family could possibly ever need Sam Rainsy's family. I heard whispers of varying stories, which are not that indifferent, but uh, Sam Rainsy had either threatened or refused to give assurances in that if he won an election, would he prosecute Hun Sen? Yep. Yep. And... Uh, he sent the wrong messages. And that is, you know, that is one of the key things for people to understand. Hun Sen looking around the world at that time, mm. you know, there was, there was the Arab Spring uprisings yeah. where people who had ruled a long time were being mm -hmm. deposed. And it was going killed. off in Malaysia, Hong Kong, Thailand. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he saw what was happening and he was resolute that it would not happen to him and would not happen to his family. The CNRP 
some of the people who strong supporters of Sam Rainsy and, and strong opponents of, of Hun Sen and the CPP found it difficult to countenance the idea that you could pardon Hun Sen or Hun Sen's colleagues for what they saw as you know crimes, mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I think Sam Rainsy and, and Kem Soka were, were caught in between forging a, a dialogue and a partnership with Hun Sen mm-hmm. whilst also appeasing their, their strongest supporters, I guess. How emboldened were they by the result in 2013? They had 47, 48% of the vote, I think. 60, 65% of the population is under 30, 35. Yep. And over another five years, the, yep. the younger people, they're maturing, they're going to vote. They're all leaning towards yep. the opposition. Yeah, I think emboldened is a great description of how they were feeling. And I don't think it takes much for Sam Rainsy to feel emboldened. Yeah. Um, so they certainly felt the win was at their backs and that change was, was upon them. Now, they might have felt that, you know, waiting, they'd done enough waiting and that this was their time. Right. This leads me to the next point because I think the second biggest mistake the CNRP made was in not taking up their seats in Parliament. Had they just come out and said, we lost the last election, we've got, I can't remember the actual number of seats, but it might have been 50, 60 seats in the National Assembly out of 120. And if they'd gone into opposition, like in most countries, where you take up your seats in Parliament and you use parliamentary privilege and exercise the responsibilities that go with that, and then go on to the next election, it might have been a different story. But they didn't do that. No, no, and, and in the book I talk about uh, a couple of conversations I had with a CPP person where you know he said immediately after that 2013 election, mm-hmm. Hun Sen recognised the strength of the CNRP and he said quite quickly the CPP offered the CNRP various roles, Deputy President yep. of the National Assembly, becoming Chairperson of five of the ten committees in the, the National Assembly, etc., but the CNRP didn't want that. They wanted a re-election or they wanted UN inspections or, and things like that. Now, after the protests took place and then the crackdown by the government and their police and army, we were left with an agreement in a year later, which was effectively what had been offered immediately after the election. Right, this was after the protests. Yeah, exactly. Where there were thousands and thousands and thousands hitting the streets. There was that bloody day where at least five people were killed, yeah. some say six. Yeah. Uh, there was one person, there was another person seen taken away mm-hmm. with a belly full of lead and never to be heard from again. Yeah. But it had certainly got out of hand, yeah. the demonstrations. Yes. That is, and that's when the crackdown came. Yeah. And from the CPP man's perspective, he was saying, he said, look, You've done all of this for a year, you've caused this chaos, you've caused this havoc and protest, and you've ended up with the exact same deal as what was an offer immediately. Right. He said what they should have done was taken that deal, worked collaboratively, mm-hmm. and then they could have you know, built further support and convinced more people of their ability to govern the country and then be in a better place to win the 2018 election. Now that's... That's one way of looking at it. Another way, though, is that it doesn't matter what the CNRP did. Hun Sen was never going to give up power. And he would never have allowed the possibility 
of the CPP losing power in 2018. So whether the CNRP did the right thing or the wrong thing after the election becomes a bit of a moot point, if once you believe. I, and now once I were dissolved by the court. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. And that's, I guess, a lot of point, people would point to that as evidence that there was no way that the CNRP was going to win because the CPP wouldn't just not let them. And they would use right. any means at their disposal, right up and to using the Supreme Court to dissolve the CNRP, okay. imprison their leader, Kem Sokat, so, and exile Sam Rainsy. Let's digress just a little bit. I'll use my imagination a tad. Any country but Cambodia, if you had the ruling political party had won the election, there's no doubt, and you've got international monitors saying, yes, they won. Mm -hmm. Then the opposition party says, no, we won, and they had no proof. I read their own internal reports. They had no proof of the allegations of rigging. Then they boycott parliament. So parliament's effectively strangled hold. Mm -hmm. Then you've got thousands upon thousands protesting on the streets and it's gone bloody. People are killed. What would you do as the leader of that country? What would... What, 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 <laughs> if what, I was Hun Sen, what would what, I do? No, 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 no. What, if you were the leader of another country, not Hun Sen, but what, I'm, ah. what I am driving at, obviously, is what were the alternatives? Yeah. I mean, the easy answer is to say, just don't let it get to that stage. Right. But which is Beng Shreng Street, which is mm. when the, the protests turned bloody and people were killed. The police and the army were sent onto the streets and shots were fired. I mean, I think that is the, the crux of it. Once it's got to that stage, it's, it's already, you've already missed the opportunity mm -hmm. to, to manage things better and to try to engage with the opposition. And I think part of the, the reason that the opposition were not willing to discuss with the CPP was because of a lack of trust mm -hmm. and was because of a lack of good faith. And that comes about from past behaviour. You know, you could understand why Sam Rainsy didn't wholly trust right. the CPP because of what happened before. You know, this is a man who had a grenade going off at his feet. Sure, and then I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the grenade attack was 20 years earlier. And yeah. No yeah. one's going to simply dismiss that. But after 2018 election, the CNRP had been outlawed. Mm -hmm. Sen won all 125 seats in Parliament. And then Sam Rainsy, he says he's going to come back, he's going to land in Cambodia, mm -hmm. he's going to march across the country, and he's going to oust Hun Sen. And everybody knew that was not going to happen. He couldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, just talking to regular Khmers, they were laughing. They were like, he's got no guns, how can he do that? <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. They're very pragmatic about yeah, it all. Yeah, but there yeah. was, it, it was an extraordinary claim that whipped up extraordinary headlines around the planet. Yeah. And what followed next, I thought, was pretty much out of order because Hun Sen knows that Sam Rainsy was incapable mm -hmm. of doing any such thing. Yeah. But Sam Rainsy just gave it to Hun Sen on a platter and Hun Sen yeah. just locked up. Yeah, gave him an excuse. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And Sam Rainsy, so, you know, 2018, the election, the CNRP were uh, dissolved, abolished, in November 2017, there was the national election in July 2018. And Sam Rainsy initially said, you know, we'll have a, a boycott of the election. And that will mean that the election will be illegitimate. Mm -hmm. 
and that the UN won't uh, recognise, or international community won't recognise Hun Sen as the, the new government. And that was, people saw that as being a, an unbelievable statement. It was. I mean, it doesn't work like that. Some countries simply recognise the country and yeah. will accept the government in power because they display they have power. The French yeah. are very good at that. Yeah. They don't necessarily have to recognise yeah, yeah. you as a leader. It doesn't yeah. work like that. So I think that was another moment where Sam Rainsy lost credibility. Because right. first of all, he was telling people, you know, the CNRP will be reinstated before the election. The international community will make sure it happens. That didn't happen. Then he was saying, we'll boycott the election and nobody will turn up to vote and the international community won't recognise the government. And that didn't happen either. And a lot of people did go to vote. A lot of people were pressured to go to vote, but they did go to vote. So Sam Rainsy's credibility was, was already falling. And then... While well, his supporters are being locked up. Uh, yeah, and he's out the country. Yeah. And then as time goes on and he, he talks about coming back and he talks about taking over power and he's betting Hun Sen... Um, his credibility falls even further. So back in 2022, when I was there last, just before the communal elections, you're right, there were Khmer people who were viewing him in a laughable manner. He still had his diehard supporters, but there were people who had lost respect for him. And I think that was indicative of the end of Sam Rainsy's political career in Cambodia in a really meaningful way to challenge Hun Sen. And the Candlelight Party re-emerged out of the ashes of the CNRP. They were disqualified. It was yep. an absolute no-nonsense assertion of power. Yep. And uh, Hun Sen Peck made a minor return, winning five seats yep. at the elections in July. Yep. CPP has 120. And Hun Sen, he did live up to his word. He has been indicating for about a year and a half he would transfer power, and he did. Yep, he did. Yeah, quicker than, than I expected. When I was speaking to Cambodians, even just before the, the election there, you know, everybody expected the transition to power to occur. People thought it would happen before the next national election in 2028. But I think people thought it would maybe happen in two or three years. I don't think any, you know, many people, if anybody, thought it would happen immediately after the election. And I think that's another example of Hun Sen's intelligence. Um, and it's not an educated intelligence that people might uh, kind of respect of, of great leaders, but it does show an ability of a good judgment in terms of maintaining people. power. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And on that note, just quickly, because we are running out of time, Hun Manet, will he be his own man or should we expect more of the same? He is not his own man. He's a product of his culture, of his country and his, his family, his father. He is not going to be able to just throw all of that off and suddenly become a Western-educated Democrat. That's not how it works. And I think it's cultural arrogance to assume that just because he's gone to university in American Britain, he's automatically going to become one of us. On that note, Gordon Carnegie, thanks very much. Thanks, Luke. Cheers. Thank you. That was good.